This morning, I want us to think together about those times when we feel our lives are out of control. Times of testing, confusion, uncertainty. Times when we feel far from God. Times when the most we can do is sort of hang on or show up. Uh, reflecting a little deeper, it occurred to me that really life is full of at least uh, many out-of-control situations, like children grow up and all of a sudden we realize we can't control their lives, as I indicated two weeks ago, I'm learning that lesson. Or aging bodies bring changes to our bodies we can't control, we don't like, but we can't control. There's ups and downs in the economy that bring changes to our financial dreams, over which we have little control. Friday was another such warning. And then there's that gnawing waiting. Some of us are just waiting for something. It doesn't happen. We pray. We can't do a thing. It's out of our control. <clears throat> now, the thing about out-of-control times, whatever they might be, they can catch us very much unaware. They can be chaotic, even turbulent. And yet I'm offering today that these very circumstances that we'd probably like to avoid, as believers, they present us with an opportunity to learn in a new way what it means to trust God as our refuge. And I'd suggest there's no greater lesson in life. In the Old Testament, refuge initially referred to a city, a place where uh, someone could flee when they were being chased by an enemy and the community there would protect and provide for them. But Eugene Peterson wisely points out that you ceased to, re, to refer to a place and it became synonymous with trusting God as our refuge and strength. Now, because all of us are going to spend time in an out-of-control experience, it's important in advance, if not today, to learn what it means when we trust God rather than something or someone else as our refuge and strength. So first, being out of control enables us to distinguish between idols and the living God. David puts it this way, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Now put that in context, David refers to God as a refuge 37 times in the Psalms, and who is he? He's a king. He has wealth, power, and pleasure at his disposal beyond any of our ability and our wildest dreams to comprehend. And yet he learned in times of crisis that it was God and not his idols of his own resources that proved to be his resource, his refuge. Uh, just track about his, uh, his life with me a moment. He fought a giant that was 10 times bigger than he was. He ran for his life from Saul, became involved with Bathsheba, was drowning in guilt, had the death of an infant son, had the death later of an adult rebellious son, and what did he learn? He discovered that all of his wealth and his power and his influence as a king were impotent to help him. There was one refuge, and that was the living God. And he discovered that that God was a person who loved him, responded when he cried out to him, even when he couldn't lift the finger to help himself. And happily, he shared that discovery with all of us as he wrote the Psalms. Now, in these times of unprecedented prosperity, it's so easy for us to believe that we're totally in control. Some of us have more resources than we ever dreamed would be ours. So much so, even as believers, we're tempted to relegate God to the back burner. And at the same time, we kind of neglect relationships with families and friends 
and idols of materialism take their place. Because you know what? Wealth, idols of materialism are very seductive. Perhaps that's why Jesus gave this tr troubling warning to people like us who live in this area. I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In another place, he said it's impossible. <clears throat> if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, don't we realize all of us are rich? Jay highlighted last week how good times confront us with a crossroads of decision. And he asked, do we pursue material well-being at the cost of our relationship with God, with friends and community? There's a couple in a covenant group that uh, were sharing with me. You have to bear with me every once in a while. I've got a, a tickle, so we'll just have to live with it today. <coughs> they were in a covenant group saying they bought this vacation home. And they put so much money into it, they've been... They, they just have to go there every weekend, take their kids with them. But now after, you know, we all know what that is. And um, now that they've been doing it, they miss church and the tapes don't quite cut it. And they're realizing that as seductive as having the ability to have a second vacation home is, somehow something's wrong. <clears throat> and as a result of their covenant group, they're kind of getting back on track. If that's the course we're traveling right now, if in your life, in some area, you're letting prosperity, the pursuit of what Silicon Valley offers to become the focus of your life so much so that it's creating a distance between you and God and you and your family and relationships. That's a road to disillusionment. And God would have you in worship today to warn you. I mentioned that refuge initially referred to a city, a place, or better yet, a community. This was a place someone in crisis could run to for, and find human support and protection. In a very similar way, God acts as our refuge in times of crisis. But you know what he uses? <clears throat> he doesn't come to us in some ethereal way. He uses family. He uses friends. He uses the community of this church to be our refuge in those moments when we are in out-of-control times and we can't help ourselves. This is why... We emphasize small groups. Why we're praying, every one of you will get into it. That's not just some program here. In a large church particularly, you'll never maximize your potential for Jesus Christ unless you're in a small group. I can say that categorically. Years ago, I was in a very difficult, painful, even hopeless situation. And it wasn't just for a few months. It was for a few years. I was hurting. I could see no meaning in my pain. I had no hope, I repeat, for a solution. Circumstances were beyond my control. You know, I've reflected back on that experience so many times, and it occurred to me it was then, in an out-of-control situation, that I discovered that God alone is my refuge and strength. <clears throat> At the same time, I learned that God uses the love of family and friends to act as a refuge and strength when we have no place else to go, and I didn't, and it worked. And it took that out-of-control experience to help me unmask the deficiency of the idols that I had pursued with a passion. And they, they proved empty, worthless, but I had to practically be stripped of my own self-confidence and my own ability to take care of myself as David, as king, learned before I could learn that God was enough. But you know the, the neat result of that that experience has become the heartbeat of my ministry in every church I've served because 
Whatever else I do as a pastor, I emphasize a church is about relationships. I believe the Bible instructs us clearly to make the church a family because we're going to be together forever. It should be a safe place of refuge for the hurting and the guilty and the broken. It should be a recovery place. It should be a place where a large group of people break down into small groups so they can be known by name and cared for and you have someone to call at 2 o'clock in the morning if you need help. Or in other words, the church needs to act as a refuge and strength through which God loves us. Do you realize God, in order to tell us about his love, had to enflesh himself in Jesus, someone we could touch and hear and, and, and relate to. And now we call us the body of Christ. That's why relationships are so vital. God gets to us, loves us, cares for us through his body. You know, a, a beautiful example. <coughs> I was touched by the leaders of the Divorce Recovery Ministry. That's a ministry I'm, I'm very committed to. And on Valentine's Day, if you've ever been through a divorce, you know that's a very, very difficult day. And they gave everybody who came a Valentine. And this is what it said. You are loved more than you will ever know. And we're so very glad you're here. And then they all signed it. And I thought, you know, that's God acting as a refuge and strength for someone who can't lift a finger to help themselves, who feel unlovable, broken. And suddenly they come here and they find God's love in action. And that's what no idol of wealth or success or power can give. That's a unique gift of the living God. So a first warning from the text. Don't chase idols at the cost of relegating God to a back seat in your life. It's a bad deal. A second truth. Being out of control reminds us we can't predict what our life situation will be one year, even one day from now. I'm not sure we like to hear that in America. But listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That isn't very happy to think about, really. <laughs> uh, we have dreams and plans for the future. Don't we all kind of have hopes to enjoy the fruit of our labor? But Jesus reminds us in the story of the rich fool about something that's extremely important, namely the foolishness of looking exclusively to what we can acquire and invest in this world and use it as our future security. The rich fool was a fool in that he had all these barns, they were ready, he was good for the great, ready for the great life and he died that night. You know, that, that's a bad story. And, and the question that is raised is, you, you see, we're mortal. And barns of wealth are limited in the security they can provide. God put a hunger for something far more than this world in us. And that's namely our eternal destiny with him. And if we forget that truth and that relationship with God in the process of chasing the idols of Silicon Valley, again, we're making a bad deal. Though we don't like to hear it, our text says our life is a mist. Um, have you ever been fascinated? I have. Why does the whole nation get so overcome with an airliner crash? You know, there's lots of tragedies in the world, but an airliner crash, it'll just dominate the news for 10 days while we're finding out what happened and you think of those horrible things of what, how those people died. You know, one thought I have is an airliner crash reminds us we're frail, we're mortal. 
That's out of our control and it's very scary. <clears throat> or take Charles Schultz, for example. I loved peanuts for years. Here the guy dies on the day of his retirement. He was a Christian. You see, we're mortal. Life is a mist. And yet we live as if that weren't true. We kind of had, have a duality. Let, let me tell you how it works for me. You know, as a Baptist, I used to sing this little chorus, which if you missed it, you didn't miss much. But it used to go, um, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The heavens beckon me from heaven's open door, and I don't feel at home in this world anymore. And I sang that as a teenager. had no idea what it meant. Didn't mean it. Still don't. Because, you see, I like this world, and so do you. I get up and preach and say, let's get ready for eternity. But as I tell you often, I'm still not there with Paul where I could just say, I'm so excited about going and being with Jesus that I'd rather be there than here. Honestly, I'd rather be here than there today. Uh, and, and I hope that doesn't sound fallacious, but it's really serious. You know what I thought about this week? I get enamored with uh, bidding on houses thinking, I wonder what mine's worth or mega remodels or my next vacation or some other form of pleasure, some acquisition that I want. <clears throat> um, you know what? I, I have an addiction even. I've told you about it. it happens to be cars. And, and the thing I've been giving more thought this week to than Jesus is a Corvette. Um, <laughs> that's sad. In fact, the word's pathetic for a preacher at my stage. But isn't that how we are? The duality we play as Christians between wanting to be with Jesus, believing we have an eternal destiny and spend so much of our effort, time and desires and passion on stuff that isn't going to matter a hundred years from now. That's what this text is about. And the point is, I know better. And I also know if I'm ever going to change, it's going to be Jesus Christ who helps me understand my real security is in him alone and not in this world. A close friend has invested years of incredible labor in building a business that has exploded with success. But meanwhile, he and his family have drifted from the church, and it's made me very sad. In fact, I've prayed for them every day for years now. Well, last week he learned he has cancer. You know what? Suddenly, he's very much aware he's not in control of his life. And what's more, he was in church last week. His son told me how his dad suddenly has set aside the pressing business that's dominated his life for 24 hours a day. And now he's talking about weird things like needing prayer and just wanting to have the family over and spend some time with family. Why does it take something like cancer to remind us our life is a mist, that life is a non-renewable resource, why do we invest it in stuff that isn't going to matter a hundred years from now and bypass this other stuff that we, we, we want to embrace if we know our time is limited? Why is that? I guess it's sin. And one of the reasons we come to worship is we need to be reminded. Why we come to worship every week is God gets us back on track after we get seduced into detours during the week. Life is frail. Life is unpredictable. Second truth in the text. But a third one, and this is good news. God is full of surprises when life spins out of our control and we turn to him for help. The psalmist explained what he meant by refuge in the 107th Psalm. He turns the wilderness into a standing water 
and dry ground into springs of water. That's a metaphor of what God does. He takes the impossible and makes it happen. Like, when David thought of God as a refuge, he thought of a God who came to him in his darkest moments, when there was no solution, no hope, and he brought springs flowing out of those rocks of hopelessness, out of his deserts of pain, and he discovered, yes, God, you are my refuge. You do the impossible. And I believe God brought some of us today to church to reassure us there is no situation in which he can't show up and bring surprising solutions, even water into the desert of your despair. And sometimes it's when nothing in our lives is going right, when burdens are too heavy, problems are too complex, that we experience these surprise divine interruptions. And that's what God as a refuge is all about. He's a living God who responds to his children, knows us by name, and comes to us when we cry out to him. One of the great surprises emerging from out-of-control times is spiritual growth. Like my friend who invested his life in a business, now he has a renewed hunger to cultivate the only treasure in life that matters, and that's his relationship with God. And that can happen to you today. So out-of-control isn't bad. The problem is, spiritual growth in an out-of-control experience doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like growth. In fact, during my years, it felt like I was dying and sometimes it's only in retrospect that we can see the interventions of God and know for certain, yes, God, you were there. I couldn't see you. I didn't feel you. I see it now. Why did I doubt you? If our out-of-control times guard us from falling victim to the myth that's dominating Silicon Valley and America today, namely that wealth is the only thing that's important in life, if it's prevents us from being seduced by idols of materialism that in the long measure of things will not matter one iota, then an out-of-control experience is something we'll praise God for in eternity. Now, maybe today, uh, or maybe not today, or maybe not even tomorrow, will you be able to praise God for an out-of-control experience? But take it from one pastor who's been there and done that. There will come a day when you can that you'll, re re you'll recognize it as a gift, not an affliction. But meanwhile, until that happens, I do hope this much has happened in worship today. You have found reassurance that God's in this process of giving you a surprise solution to your needs. He's a father who cares, who loves you infinitely. He's heard your prayer. And his word right now for today is, trust me, you're not in control, but I am and everything's going to be okay. I close with these words of the psalmist, but let all who take refuge in you, O God, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them and those you love. May they rejoice in your name. Isn't that neat when we can come to worship kind of burdened and stressed and leave rejoicing? Nothing really happened, and yet everything happened. Because we let go of the controls, we let God take over. And that made all the difference. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, O oh God, for being our refuge and strength. Forgive us for being deluded into thinking something less than you can be our security, that it's worth our lives. Get us back on track before we have to go there by some event. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.